0: You all come up here about the same age, same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then, and then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you gotta figure out. Well, nothing says good morning like city slickers. How many of you, just by a show of hands, uh, saw that movie City Slickers? You're old. <clears throat> That movie was 18 years ago in 1991, and uh, Billy Crystal looked a lot better uh, than he does today back then. But uh, I love that show, and uh, I love that line, do you know what the secret of life is? It's just one thing. Well, again, welcome to The Jar. My name's Chris. We're so uh, glad that if you're uh, visiting with us for the first time or you came back from Easter, we're excited that you did. And uh, today, we're going to continue on in our series called Wired. And uh, we're going to look at the fact that God has wired us in uh, different ways, and he's wired us as unique individuals. And today, we want to talk about being wired for wholeness. Um, And that's what we're going to look at. Now, when you think of this word wholeness, um, you think of a word in which our culture talks about constantly. In fact, um, it's marketed all the time. When you think of the word wholeness, you think of the word holistic, like holistic medicine or holistic education or holistic insurance. There are holistic parents and there are even, I saw on the Internet this week, holistic pet foods and there's holistic adult foods they both taste terrible but uh, they're holistic you know and uh, this whole concept of something being holistic is to provide you with a whole benefit of life that your body and mind and spirit which are all connected can be made whole now this concept of wholeness like I said it's marketed all over the place People will talk about the importance of wanting to have a whole life, and it runs rampant in our culture. Now, some people go off on the deep end, and they drive, every, uh, they purchase everything that is whole, and uh, it doesn't really affect them too much, but they simply want to have a whole life. And this morning, we're going to begin by kind of having a working definition of wholeness. It's not extremely intellectual, but it's important for us to No, And when we think of that word wholeness, it means to be made complete. To be made complete. God wired you, and God wired you to be whole. He made you to be complete. He loves you more than anything else in His creation. More than anything else He created, He loves you the most, and He wants you to have a complete and abundant life. And so the question becomes, what then leads to wholeness? What is it that leads to a wholeness of life? Well, if you want to have a whole and healthy life, a complete life, it begins by you having the desire to be made whole. You have to have a desire to be made whole. Now, every single person in here has desires, right? Right? No matter who you are, you have a desire. For instance, for most of my life, my desire has been the Twinkie. You know why they give you two? Because you can't stop with one. And uh, I have a little bite. Didn't have breakfast this morning. But this is good. It's really good. Some of you wish you had a Twinkie right now, don't you? Well, if you're nice, I might give you one later on. But for some of us, our desire isn't Twinkies, but maybe it's um, chocolate. Or maybe it's a steak. Or maybe it's something else. And others of us have a desire for things like money and making more and more of it. if we just have enough money, then we think our life is complete or whole. And others of us desired that uh, we would be successful and we look good in front of other people. And so that becomes the guiding force of our life. And still for others of us, what we want to do is we want to control everything. Any control freaks here? We know what we call those who didn't raise their hands, right? Liars. You're all control freaks. You all have a desire to want to control something in your life. Now, some of our desires are not good for us, but some of our desires are good. Like the desire of these people who are leaving for Appalachia to serve people who are less fortunate. That's a good desire to have. Some of you have that desire to reach out to those who are in need. You have a desire to reach out and serve other people. You have a desire to love those people who are difficult to love. And ultimately, in this place, what we're trying to do is have a greater desire to know God. To know God and know Him in His fullness. In fact, God says this, I will give them the desire to know that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. Because they will wholeheartedly turn to me. Did you realize that? God has wired you to know him. That's one of his greatest kind of uh, desires for his life is that you would have a desire to know him. And he's wired you up that way. And he says, I want you to know me with your whole heart. You will know me and I will know you. And you will be on this road to wholeness. On a road to... To be made whole. But desire alone is not enough, is it? Because your desires eventually can kind of run out. Or they can end very quickly. For instance, do you remember uh, parachute pants? Anybody from the 80s? Man, I had a desire for those, man. Some of you who are younger and you're like, parachute pants, what are you talking about, Bunch? They were these pants that had zippers everywhere. You zipped, zop, zipped everything, you know? And people had a desire for that. Does anyone wear parachute pants anymore? Now, don't raise your hand for that, all right? No, you don't wear parachute pants. That desire ended. So there's got to be something more. And that is determination. Determination. You have to have a determination to be made whole. Over the past 10 years, I've had a desire to run the mini marathon down in Indianapolis. You know how many times I've run the mini marathon down in Indianapolis? One. Give me a break. Some people up here are saying zero. Gosh. Happy Easter, right? No, I I ran it once back in 1993. And it took time and it took energy to complete it. I spent uh, hours with three other guys. And we ran four times a week. Early in the morning, late at night. I remember running in the snow and in sleet in uh, January when we first started. And when it was extremely hot in April when we got to the end of our training. And uh, I was determined to run the mini. And I did it. Now, completing the many was a huge accomplishment in my life. But you know what, folks? It didn't make me whole. You know what it made me? Tired and sore. And uh, in the same way, we can do that. We can have a sense that we will want to have desire, but we just don't have the determination to do it. You know, throughout the Bible, often there are these imageries of Jesus and other writers of the Bible talking about the experience of a race and how a race is compared to our relationship with God. And there's a connectedness there. And it uh, kind of uses this uh Athletic imagery to talk about how we need to be determined and connected to God. And Paul, one of the guys who wrote over half of the New Testament, he said this. He says, Do you remember how on a racing track every competitor runs, but only one wins the prize? Well, you ought to run with your minds fixed on the prize. Every competitor in athletic events goes into serious training. Athletes will take tremendous pains. For a fading crown of leaves. But our contest is for an eternal crown that will never fade. I run the race then with what? What's it say? Determination. Folks, to be made whole, to have a whole life, to be made complete, you must not only have a desire to want to know God more, but you have to have a determination to continue to run with Him. Because to develop a whole life, a life of wholeness, it's not a sprint, but it's a marathon. And it takes time and it takes energy. But the prize, folks, isn't some rinky-dinky kind of medal that I got when I completed the uh, 2003 Indy Mini Marathon that one day will be lost or will rot away or Jordan will throw it somewhere and I'll never find it again. That's my daughter. But it's a gift of spending eternity with the one who knows you best and loves you most. But it takes determination. Now, in knowing this, why aren't more people experiencing a wholeness of life? Why aren't people feeling more whole and connected? Because our desire and our determination, folks, eventually kind of gets tainted. It becomes blurry. It becomes fuzzy. It's just not the same anymore. And we go on to the next thing to try to meet our need. But our desire and determination doesn't do it. This past Christmas, it was the first time that my daughter Jordan understood that when we gave Christmas presents to her, that they were hers and she could open them. I mean, the first year all she did was eat the paper, you know what I mean? But in year two, she actually realized that she could open these and that these were hers. And our extended family knew that, and so they piled on all of these toys. And they just piled them on. They bought tons of toys. And the only problem was is that many of their toys that they gave to us had the three most dreaded words parents ever want to see On a toy. You know what those words are? Some assembly required. Some assembly required. So a couple of days after we got all of these boxes of things that Jordan will never be able to use them all in her life. Actually, it was in January when we opened up those boxes. So it was several days. My wife, Jennifer, came up to me and she says, You know what we should do? Now, if you're not married, I want to translate that for you. When your wife says, you know what we should do, translated means, you know what what? You should do. And uh, she came up and she said, you know what we should do? And I go, "Um, no, honey, what should we do? And she said, we should just put together all of the Christmas presents that we didn't get a chance to get to today. And then she left and went to work. It was my day off. Now here's the problem, folks. I don't know how. I don't know how to use tools. I don't. My father-in-law, every year for Christmas, he buys me more tools. And I have all these nice tools. They've never even been out of those little cases. Like, I can't figure out how to flip the things on both ends. I don't know how to do it. I mean, I'm just going to confess right now. I'm not a man. Some of you construction guys are laughing right now. Yeah, yeah. Mass confession, okay. So I get the assembly directions to this thing right here called a tool bench for little tykes. And I pull it out, and uh, I think, great, now I'm putting together a tool bench, and I don't even know how to use tools. And so, um, I pull out the directions, and it says it only takes ten minutes, but some assembly required. And then it says that you're going to need two tools. You'll need a hammer and you'll also need a, uh, a screwdriver. And so I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, uh, Jordan, because my daughter Jordan's with me during this time Mom's left, Jordan, go get the hammer and uh, screwdriver, because I don't know what they are. I'm not that bad, all right? But I look in here, and I notice they give you a hammer, and they give you a screwdriver. All right, I'm not that bad. But, you know, I started uh, putting this thing together. So I get out the directions, and I start reading, I think, oh man, this is horrible. I was reading the Spanish side. Had no clue. Flipped it over, started reading the English side. And then it told me that there were these rods and these screws that uh, you had to place on this thing. And uh, I got these two rods that were supposed to be on the top and I put them in, I I couldn't get them quite right so I stopped with the rods and I just put this little thing here together because all you had to do was put it right inside you know and and that was it and so I tried to start putting the rods together and I I just couldn't do it and uh, all of a sudden it was like 45 minutes and I still hadn't put this thing together and so I I just kept working at it and um, eventually a little bit over an hour, I finally got the whole thing put together. Now, this whole time, my daughter Jordan has been playing, looking at what Dad's doing. And it's almost as if she's looking at me and saying, you want me to put it together for you, Daddy? And finally, after I got it all finished, I grabbed Jordan and I put her on my lap and I go, do you know how much I love you? And she said, yeah, yeah. And I said, do you know how much I hate to put things together? She's like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if that's good parenting or not. That's a little passive-aggressive, I know. But I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't put together a toy for any other kid or any other person because I don't know how to do it except my own. Now, here's the point. My whole life... I never learned how to work with tools or put things together. And there are two reasons why. One, my dad never showed me. You know, He's like, you want to learn how to uh, change your oil? Go make 20 bucks. You know, He just never showed me how to do that. And I never had a desire or a determination to know how to do it. Tools and putting things together just never registered on my radar screen. And some of you men are about ready to leave the church right now. Because you're like woodworkers, you're doing this stuff. You know, don't leave the church. Next time I have toys put together, just let me know. And you can come over and you can put them together, okay? But it was just never in me, you know, to want to learn how to use tools or to put things together now there are other things that are in my life that growing up as a kid that were in me for instance I said I wanted to make the high school basketball team and I practiced and practiced and practiced dribbled passed shot free throws and I made the team I sat the bench but I made the team and you know what? Right now today, if I were to have a basketball and I was going to shoot in that basketball goal, I could make 7 out of 10 free throws. I know I could. Later in my life, when I got in my early 20s, I, uh, I fell in love with this book. I was a PK, a preacher's kid. My whole life, we talked about the Bible, we read the Bible. I just never had it kind of come alive to me. But in my 20s, I started reading it for the first time, and I just couldn't put this down because it was so life-giving. It made me whole. And I got my uh, master's degree in learning how to understand this book more so that I could communicate it, so I could teach it to other people. Now, I don't know everything in this book There's still a lot I have to learn. But if people were to come up here and they were to ask me some questions about things in the Bible, more than likely I could give them some answers. I could help them out. And so often, I think we want to be good at things. The only problem is we just don't want to put the time and the energy and the effort and the determination and the discipline it takes to do those things. There's a story in John, which is in the New Testament, in chapter 5. John was a disciple of Jesus, one of the closest ones, actually. And you can read it this week if you want to. But it's a story in which Jesus encounters a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. In other words, for 38 years, he's never been able to move. And in the city of Jerusalem, where... Uh, He lived, the man lives in a place where there's this pool called the Pool of Bethesda. That's a healing pool. And that people can go to this pool. And there was a myth that an angel came down and stirred up the water. And the first person who got into the water after the angel kind of stirred it up would be healed. Now, this was a public pool. I mean, not like the pool here at the Y, but it was more like kind of a a man-made lake that was in the middle of the city. But if you could be the first one to get to the pool, you could be healed of all of your physical problems. Now, again, I don't think this was a true story. It was a myth, but people believed it during that day. And there were hundreds of people every single day that would be sitting around this pool looking at the water, just waiting for it to get stirred up a little bit. People who were blind, people who were deaf, people who were lame, people who were sick, people with all kinds of physical maladies were just kind of right around the pool. So you can just imagine the chaos that would come when the wind would get heavy and people are all looking at this water and they see it move. And, you know, people are just jumping into the pool because they want to be the first one into the water so they can be healed. Well, there's this one man who has been sitting around this pool for 38 years. He's an invalid. He can't jump into the water. And every time that the water stirs, he wants to get into the pool, but he couldn't do it. No one would throw him into the pool, and it makes sense. Why? Because they wanted to be the first ones to get in there. And he experienced this for 38 years. Then one day, Jesus walked onto the scene, and those of us who believe in Jesus believe that He has the power to heal things in our life, and some of you are a testament to that. But I've often wondered in this story what Jesus must have been thinking when He started walking towards this pool, and it's like a hospice of all of these people who are sick, and they are on the verge of death. And Jesus walks up to this pool. Now, Jesus had the power to heal everyone at the pool that day, but he doesn't do that. And he starts walking, and he's like walking over people and around people, because everyone's looking at this water, waiting for it to move so that they can be healed. And Jesus walks around, and he notices this man. And he walks straight up to him. And he asks him the question, Do you want to get well? Do you want to get better? And the man responds, Do I want to get better? Well, yeah, I want to get better. I mean, it's all within me to get better. It's just that no one is there to pick me up and put me into this pool of water. I mean, I can't walk. That's my problem. I can't get to the water first. And it's kind of a strange question to ask somebody, right? Why, why would Jesus ask this? And I think it is because this man had lived this way for 38 years. Just constantly laying down on the ground. And he learned to beg. You see, begging... From our perspective, it's a horrible thing. But if that's the only thing you know how to do, you become pretty good at it after 38 years. He became a professional beggar. And he had learned a certain lifestyle. And I think Jesus is coming to him saying, do you want to change? Do you want to get better? And at some point this man says, yes, I want to change. I want to get better. And Jesus says, well, get up and walk. Go on. Now, it's weird that this story happens because we have no idea that this man even knows who Jesus is. He doesn't believe in Him. He hasn't been following Him. But somehow, because of Jesus, he has enough faith and strength that he stands up. And you know the thing that I was imagining this week? What it must have sounded for all of those bones and tendons that had atrophied for 38 years to sound like. I mean, all of a sudden you hear this, crack, 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 crack. And he's up and he's standing. He hasn't done this for 38 years. And people around the pool, everyone notices, and they start jumping into the pool. And the man stands up, and immediately he looks down, and the Scripture tells us that he had a mat. He was laying on a mat, and I can just imagine looking down at this mat, that he had laid on for 38 years. First time that he does have to lay on. And Jesus says, pick up the mat, get out of here. You don't belong here anymore. You're okay. Take your mat, you're better. Go home. So the man picks up his mat and he begins to start walking home. And I, I think about that too. Where's his home? Thirty-eight years he's been by this pool. Now what? And he's walking, and all of a sudden, he gets stopped by one of the religious people. And he gets stopped because it's the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, you couldn't carry a mat. You couldn't do anything. And the religious elite had written like dozens of rules and regulations what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of the don'ts was you just can't carry a mat. And so this religious guy stops him and says, What are you doing? This is the Sabbath. What are you doing? You can't do this. You're sinning. What are you doing? And the guy's like, I'm walking. I haven't walked for 38 years. I mean, I haven't sinned about a mat for 38 years. I'm sinning today. I'm taking my mat and I'm walking. And the religious man says, you can't do that. You're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And by the way, who healed you? Because, see, there was another law, folks, that said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. So he wants to know who's that person. Who healed you? And the guy, you know, I mean, he's got all these tendons and bones that have popped in place. And he's walking and he's like, I I, I don't know. I, I think his name was Jesus, though. But it's a big blur. But if he comes back to me, I'll let you know who it is. And so the next day, Jesus checks up on him. You see, that's the thing, folks. When you start following Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, pretty soon what happens is He checks up on you every day. How are you doing? Do you need encouragement? Do you need love? Do you need encouragement? Do you need me to say, hey, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Let's get up. Let's go. Quit feeling guilty. And Jesus goes to this man and He basically says, I'm so glad that you're better. I forgot to tell you something though. You need to stop sinning. Because if you don't, your life will be worse than before you were healed. Stop it. Now, I'm not sure what that sin was. The scripture doesn't tell us. But Jesus knew it, and this man knew it. It was like Jesus almost could see within his heart, and he's like, you know what? There's one thing that just isn't quite right it's anti God. And whatever that thing is, you need to get it corrected. He's like, stop standing. Stop that life. You know, that life that is all about you and it's all about me and what I want, and stop living that complete, half hearted, half dedicated life towards God. You see, folks, sin, when it comes right down to it, all of sin has its root. And its root is of me wanting to be in the charge of my life. Of me thinking I know what's best. Of me thinking that the best hope is me. Everything always falls out of me-isms when it comes to sin. And there's just this one thing in this man's life in which he hadn't kind of given over to God. And Jesus comes back and he says, if you want to get better, if you really, really want to get better, you've got to let this thing go. You've got to stop it. And today Jesus is asking us, but he told that man on that day, but he's asking us, will you turn away from your sin and will you turn towards God? Will you turn towards me? Will you turn away from an incomplete life? And will you turn towards a whole life, a complete life? And the choice, it's up to you. You see, Jesus talked a lot about people following God and about keeping the commandments. The Pharisees, the religious guys... The guys who told this man as he's walking down this road that you need to uh, uh, turn your life around because you're sinning, you're carrying your mat, and they have all of these rules. What they would do typically, they'd sit around in circles and they'd say, now what are the greatest and what are the lesser, what are the greater, what are the lesser commandments? In fact, they had 600, over 600, 618 commandments on how to live a perfect life, a whole life. And one day they're talking about all of this, and they try to corner Jesus on what is the most important. And Jesus, uh, and, and this story in Mark 12, tells us this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all these great commandments, which one is the greatest commandment? The most important one, answered Jesus, and he doesn't give them a response at first. He kind of pauses, and he gives them a prayer. It's called the Shema. It was the prayer in which Jewish people would pray at night and in the morning when they would wake up. And then he goes on and he says, this is what is the greatest. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven, from the kingdom of God. And then I love this sentence. And from then on, no one dared to ask him more questions. Jesus got him. He got him to shut up. Because they were looking at 618 and he just broke it down in a few minutes to two. You know, when you push Jesus, when you push into him and you ask him, what is this thing called life all about? How do I live a whole life? What is the secret to life? What is that one thing? When you push into Him on that, He'll look at you and He'll say, there is one God and you should spend your whole life loving Him. Love Him with your heart. Love Him with your mind. Love Him with your soul. Love Him with your strength. And not just part, but what's the word say? It says all. All of your passion, all of your priorities, all of your actions, all of your movements, all that you are, you should love. The commandment does not say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love Him with half of your heart and half of your mind and a part of your body. He says, no, it's all or nothing. If you want to be whole, if you want to have a wholeness of God, you have to love Him. And it really is, folks, all or nothing. But you know what I've learned as human beings? we become very, very good at compartmentalizing our lives. We say, God, you can have this day and this time and in this building. And you can have that part Of my heart. But when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to how I spend my money, when it comes to my emotional problems, I mean, when it comes to putting little tykes, workbenches together, when it comes to my attitude of how I do that, when it comes to how I drive, when it comes to how I talk to my spouse or my children or my friends or even my boss. Does it matter? And folks, it matters. And God has everything to do with that. He really does. You know, we're all known for something. And I decided a long time ago that when people looked at me and they were trying to figure me out, that they would notice, first of all, I'm a broken person. I don't have it all together. And I'm okay with that. But what I wouldn't want them to look at me and try to say is, Bunch, that's that religious guy. I wouldn't want people to say that about me. And I wouldn't want them to say, oh, there's Chris Bunch." And that guy can hit 7 out of 10 free throws. Because I don't care. But I think I, what I'd want people to say about me is that he's a real guy. And he tries his best. Not perfect, but he tries his best to follow this Jesus and to figure out what Jesus wants him to do with his life. And I hope when they looked at me, they'd say, you know what, the thing I like about him, he's the same in his home, as he is at work, as he is when he stands up in front of people, as he is when he's goofing around with other people. And his one priority is to have a whole life that's focused on Jesus. But you know what the problem is, folks? You can't just desire that. Just like you can't just desire to put together the little tyke's workbench, it takes determination. You've got to give your whole life for him. There's a book in Hebrews, or there's a book in the Bible called Hebrews, it's in the New Testament. It's actually written to Christians after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, it's written after Easter. And I was thinking, you know, today is the Sunday after Easter. And it'd be good for us to maybe hear what that writer had to say. Because he talks about entering a whole life. How we can be known as someone who loves Jesus and loves Him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And he begins in chapter 11, he lists all these faithful people in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, and says, you know, these were people that weren't perfect, but they, they followed him, they tried to connect with him. And then he starts in chapter 12, at the end of this whole long list, and this is what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses which he's talking about all these people who have died, who've gone before, but who are praying for us, who are encouraging us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which we cling so closely to. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I think in this passage, what it does is it gives you some steps of how, to heal, uh, of how to live a whole life, how to live a healed life, a whole life. First of all, it says we have to lay aside our weights and our sins. You have to lay aside those things. When I turned 35... My metabolism changed. Before 35, I could eat anything I wanted. And whether I exercised or I didn't exercise, it didn't matter. I could just go and do whatever and my weight didn't change. But when I hit 35, all of a sudden, where are you, friend? Twinkies. And for lunch, every lunch... I had Whopper, the home of the Whopper. That Twinkie's good. But I had to finally decide that I just wouldn't eat those two things. I had to lay them down. I had to drop some things in my life if I wanted to be physically whole. And those two things weighed me down, and I had to drop them. And for some of you, it may not be your physical life. Maybe it's your financial life. And you've got to drop some credit cards. Now, the only problem is, when you drop things, folks, they're still there. They're looking up at you. And you have to do something else. And the writer here says you have to run. You run with endurance. In other words, you run like a marathon runner, not a sprinter. You run knowing that you're going to have to run for the rest of your life. You're just going to have to run. But you just can't keep running away from things, because if you run far enough away from the Twinkie or the Whopper, eventually you'll be like, "Wow, those really weren't that bad. And you'll run towards them. So you have to run away from them, and you run towards something else. And the writer says, look to Jesus. Run towards Jesus. Look to Him. Fix your eyes on him, because he will make you whole. Now, for some of you this morning, to be made whole means you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. It's like putting a piece of the puzzle together, and there is a missing piece to the puzzle of your life. And you're trying to find it in everything else, but the piece is Christ. Maybe you were here last week, maybe you've been checking out the jar, maybe you've been here a long time, but the reality is, you've never given your whole life to Him. You have to lay aside your sins, and you fix your eyes on Jesus. And you have to be determined to run towards something. And for some of you, it might be the Bible. That's why this Saturday, I just want to encourage all of you, take the time to walk through the New Testament. It's an investment of your life that uh, you'll never have to worry about getting anything back because it will have dividends. But that's the thing that's missing, the missing piece of the puzzle of your life. Now, for others of you, you've accepted Christ, but the area of your life that is not whole is your financial life. You're in so much debt right now as you sit there that you think there's no way I'm ever going to get out. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And Jesus says, you know what? It's going to be hard to get out of this debt, but you can do it. We'll do it together. But you've got to be determined to stay on the plan, drop the credit cards, don't pick them up again. And we'll talk about that next week. For others of you, it's your relational life. I mean, you're like, I don't have a problem loving God. I just hate everyone else in the world. You got a problem. You have to learn how to change so that you can have better relationships with your spouse, with your friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, boss, coworkers, neighbors, kids. And over the next few weeks, we'll be doing that. And for some of you, it's emotionally. You have been hiding some pain and some hurt in your life for decades, and you're just not whole. Folks, God wired you for wholeness. Not just in one area of your life, but your whole life. And we want to help you in these next few weeks to be more whole. And the question is, do you want to get better? Do you really want to get better? Let's stand for closing prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us enough that you desire to make us whole. Each of our lives, God, is like a puzzle. And the only problem is, God, there are some pieces to the puzzle that are missing. We know what they are. We could identify what they are right now. But we can't do it on our own. We need Your help. But we're determined to do so. And so, God, would You come and would You help to make us whole in our body, in our mind, in our spirit? And for some of us this morning, God, that means we give our lives to You. We just say, Jesus, right now, to the best that I know, I turn away from the sins in my life and I want to turn towards you. I want a new relationship with you. Forgive me of my sins and make me whole. And for others of us, God, when we look at the puzzle, the piece that is missing is financial freedom. Or maybe it's loving relationships or maybe it's being healthy emotionally. Jesus, in these next few weeks, help us to be made whole. You've wired us for wholeness. Now help us to live that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Know you're loved in this place. If you like prayer for anything, come on up. And Saturday, 9 o'clock, you can sign up today.